Good morning. It's a privilege, privilege to be with you again and to minister God's word to you this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our series today through the book of Matthew. And this morning we're going to talk about the king revealed. The king revealed. Before we get started, let's pray together one more time. Father, it's a privilege to worship you this day. To come, Lord, to behold our God, to behold our King seated on his throne. Oh, come, let us adore him. We adore you this morning, Lord Jesus. Give us a glimpse, God, into the eternal throne room this day. Help us to see you as you are, and be changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And as you do, I want to share with you this um, uh, brief little comment that Charles Wesley, excuse me, John Wesley, uh, made one time. Uh, John had the Opportunity at this uh, particular time to be in the robe chamber adjoining the House of Lords in England there. And I'm presuming that's where the king would put on his robes before he entered into the, the House of Lords there in the British government. And this is, this is the comment that John Wesley had to make uh, about the king of England. He said, quote, I was in the robe chamber adjoining to the House of Lords when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And is this all the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford, a blanket of ermine around his shoulders so heavy and cumbersome he can scarce move under it? A huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold glitter and glittering stones upon his head. Alas, what bauble is human greatness. And even this will not endure. That's astounding, isn't it? John Wesley looking at the king of England and all his royal glory. And the best that human greatness has to offer is a fancy looking blanket and some shiny stones which won't even endure. This morning, what we're going to talk about is Jesus' revelation to the world. Not with robes and glory and a crown, but with his anointing for ministry. To give his life as a king, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Greatness in the kingdom of God is much greater than the greatness of man. It endures forever. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the king revealed. For Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three uh, things from our passage this morning. Number one, the position of the king. Number two, the posture of the king. And number three, the proclamation of the king. The position of the king, the posture of the king, and the proclamation of the king. Number one, we see the position of the king. So it's during this time period that John is baptizing, as we talked about last time, and he's calling people to repentance, to prepare, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And of course, that's synonymous with saying, the king is coming. Because his kingdom is at hand. And so he's calling people to prepare for the coming of the king. And he's doing this by calling them to repentance. To turn from their sins and from themselves in, in glad submission to God's chosen king. And Jesus comes from Galilee, which is in the northern part of the land of Israel, uh, where Nazareth is to the uh, southeastern part of the country, to the Jordan River of the, of the Judean countryside. And um, we have to kind of put ourselves in their shoes, I think, to understand what's going on. One can only imagine the anticipation that is building in Israel at this time. Think about it. Here's this man, John the Baptist, and he's an unusual kind of fella. He's clearly uh, identifying himself as the prophet Elijah, who is to come, he's wearing a a garment of camel's hair. He eats locusts and wild honey. He's he's strong with his language. He's not even uh, scared to speak boldly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them a brood of vipers. He even will lose his head over upholding biblical sexual morality. By the way, as an aside, in the coming days, if you're going to remain a Christian, you better be prepared to lose your head over Christian sexuality. Because that's where the battle is raging. John lost his head over. He confronted King Herod on his own immoral relationship with his brother's wife. But here it is, is this John, who's obviously no ordinary fellow, and he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so you can only imagine in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the surrounding period at this time, they're thinking, what's going on? What's about to happen? What's God about to do? He's saying that the king is arriving, that the fulfillment of God's promises has come. The restoration and deliverance of Israel is at hand. And so big was the stir that we said. Remember that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're the ones, they came out just to see what the ruckus was all about. And they even questioned him about who he was and what he was doing. And so everybody knows that something is going on, but they're not quite sure what yet. 
And in the midst of all this, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And Matthew records that John tried to deter Jesus uh, from, from this. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And we have to ask, you know, we have to ask Matthew, why, why do you record this, um, this little interaction between John and Jesus? But the answer, I think, is quite clear, is that he wants us to see, as I'm saying here, the position of the king. We talked about last time how Jesus will go on to say that John was the greatest of all men born of women. And yet here, the greatest man ever born is saying to Jesus, Who am I that you would come to me to be baptized by me? So what that is telling us then, that if John is so great, then how great is Jesus? A man whom John is not even worthy, says, to stoop down and loosen the strap of his sandal. And note here in this interaction, (laughs) Jesus doesn't argue with John about the point that he's making. Jesus doesn't say, oh, John, what are you talking about? I'm not that big a deal. Why? Why can't Jesus do that? Because it would be a lie. You see, it's, it's, it's pride and it's arrogant to make a big deal about yourself when you're not a big deal. But guess what? It would have been a sin for Jesus to, to feign humility and say he's not a big deal when he is, in fact, the biggest deal that has ever happened in human history. It would have been a sin for him, to, for him to feign humility by saying, oh, I'm not a big deal. So basically he says, John, you're right. <laughs> it's true. He is the sinless son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed king, the virgin-born son of God who will rule the nations, the one before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So John had at least some glimpse of who it was he was in the presence of. You see, John's baptism was one of repentance, and John, as great a man as he was, he he too still had need of his own repentance. But here stands a man before him who had no need of repentance whatsoever. The only sinless man who ever lived, coming to him to be baptized. And so one of the ways I think we can apply this is that John had a profound sense of the position of the king, of who was coming to him for baptism. He, John knew where he stood in relation to Jesus. And he responded in humble awe at the position of the king. And so the question that every human being and everyone in this room has to ask themselves, we have to ask ourselves this, what, how do we view ourselves in relationship to the king? What posture are we taking in our hearts toward the king? John saw him and he says, who am I that you would come to me? My fear is that too many even professed Christians don't have a humbled awe before Christ. You see, there's few people in the world who actually outright have a dislike or hate or antagonism toward Jesus. There's few people that are like that. I would argue that for the average person, it's actually worse than that. We don't hate Jesus because at least hating Jesus would be acknowledgement of his significance. 
We do worse than that. Worse than hating Jesus is this, being indifferent towards him. Because then we're not even aware of his own significance. Indifferent towards Christ. Neither here nor there. Neither hot nor cold. The king of the universe is relegated to a relatively insignificant part of our lives. Tiny little corner that we keep him in when we need him. Oh, that God would give us a proper humility before our Christ the humility of John, the awestruck wonder that God's anointed king would condescend to come to us. And even what's more, to even let us participate in the work that he's doing in the world. In fact, if you can even fathom this, the Bible says that when it's all said and done, he will let us sit with him on his throne. As as he sits on his father's throne. What glory it is that the kingdom of heaven came to earth and allows us to participate in his kingdom. So we haven't grasped anything until we have grasped the position of the king. What's your posture towards Lord Jesus this morning? Pray that God would give us humble awe and reverence toward him. So number one, the position of the king. And number two, the posture of the king. The posture of the king. When John would have prevented him from uh, receiving his baptism, Jesus answered him. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, John was astounded that Jesus would come to be baptized by him. And as we said before, Jesus didn't feign his own insignificance, but neither did Jesus... Lord his glory, as it were, even though he is the Lord of glory. Jesus incredibly and humbly, if that's possible, which it is, acknowledged that John was right. That in a sense, it was out of order for him to receive John's baptism rather than the other way around. But Jesus said, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And what does Jesus mean by this? And um, I'll just be honest with you. I read a lot of people. And I, have no, I really don't know what Jesus means by this. Uh, there's lots of conflicting opinions. Um, and that's just a lesson. That some things are more clear in scripture than others. And that's why it's dangerous to develop a whole doctrine over an unclear passage, but we have to kind of take the whole counsel of Scripture and use sanctified wisdom in weighing the options. Many people kind of want to read the Apostle Paul's understanding of righteousness into this verse and say here that what Jesus is saying is that he has to fulfill all righteousness in the sense of living a perfectly righteous life so that he can then be the basis of our justification that is, he, gives a per- he lives a perfectly righteous life uh, in order that he might offer it on our behalf so that uh, uh, God's, uh, the debt that we owe to God, a perfect life, is paid by him and his death, and, and our death is paid by Christ as well, so that all that together means that we can stand before Christ in a righteousness not our own. And therefore, this, part, this was part of that, of, God, of Jesus living a perfectly righteous life for our justification. 
Now, of course, all that's true. It's, all that is true that that's what Jesus, Jesus was perfectly righteous in order to justify sinners. That's true. But the question is, is that what Jesus meant here when he said that? Uh, I think that's kind of a stretch because you're, you're then reading the Apostle Paul into the book of Matthew. And if you read the book of Matthew, Matthew uses righteousness less in a sense in relation to justification of how we're made right with God. But in the book of Matthew, righteousness tends to refer simply to living a righteous life before God, practicing righteousness, doing that which pleases God. That's typically how Matthew uses the word righteousness in his book. And so, despite all the fullness of theology we may want to try to draw out of this verse, I actually think the simplest interpretation is the best. When Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness, all he is saying, I think, is this. And that, and that is, it's what God wants me to do. <laughs> so I'm going to do it. It's fitting, God sees it fitting at this time that I be baptized by you. In other words, it fulfills all the righteousness. It's, it's, what, it's the right thing to do at this time, at this point of redemptive history. And I think that um, that's supported by the fact that Jesus said, let it be so now in order to fulfill all righteousness. So when he says, let it be so now, it kind of gives it this force that it's at this particular time in history where I am coming, where I am coming as, a, as 100% human man, to in every way be as a man in order to fulfill all the righteousness that God wants me to. And so, and so Jesus, what he's doing is he's submitting. He's saying, this is the right thing that God the Father wants, so this is what I'm going to do. So I just think simply we can't really go beyond that. And we just need to say that Jesus is saying that this is just what God wants him to do at this time. Of course, what most people want to do, want to know, is not merely that God wanted Jesus to be baptized, but why God wanted Jesus to be baptized at this time. And I believe to speculate about that just goes goes beyond our passage. He's he's not commenting on that. You can speculate on it if we want to, and and many people have, and say that what he's doing is, is identifying with a sinner in every way. That is that even though he had no need of repentance and therefore no need of baptism, he is in essence identifying with sinful humanity by undergoing baptism so that in every way he can stand in the place of a sinner. That is, be every way inhuman in every way that we are yet without sin, as it says in the book of Hebrews. So perhaps, perhaps that's uh, right. We're not, we're not sure. The clear lesson I do think we can draw from this passage is this, and this is important is that Jesus submitted to this baptism because it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. That is, Jesus sees that his life and his ministry is about fulfilling something greater, if you will, than his own will or his own plans. In other words, there's a righteousness that, in a sense, of course, he's God, so, it, you know, the whole Trinity thing, you know, it makes it a little complicated, but it, 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 he, he's submitting, if you will, to God the Father, Right? His desire is to please, in this moment, God the Father, to fulfill all the righteousness that God the Father has him to fulfill. And so, what I'm saying here is this, is that Jesus did, if you read the book of Matthew, all that he did was in fulfillment of this or fulfillment of that. That is, everything that Jesus did, he was committed to doing according to the will of the Father. Jesus didn't do anything willy-nilly, as we have said before, my favorite technical term. Jesus had a singular goal 
as the king of heaven to get this, to do everything the father wanted him to do. To fulfill all the father planned for him to do. That means then that the king of heaven himself is a humble king. You see that? In John 6, 38, it says, Jesus said, I have not come down, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, if there ever was a person with the rights to do whatever they wanted to do, it was Jesus. And yet all that Jesus wanted to do was what the Father wanted him to do. So even Jesus Christ himself did not come to just, even as the king of heaven did not come do whatever he wanted. He come to submit, to be humble, to show, to show his submission to the Father. To be the perfect example to us of what it means for us to be human. That is to live in joyful, glad submission to the will of our loving Father. That's what it means to be truly human. And he came to show us that and give us the perfect example of that and to be that for us, what we couldn't be. Jesus was the perfect example of what it means to be captivated by another's vision for our life. And that's what humility is. That's what humility is. Humility, I think, is, one, is perhaps the greatest virtue because humility is that simple acknowledgement that you need more than you can provide for yourself. That we can't save ourselves. And that's the bare minimum of being saved is acknowledging that you can't save yourself. And that you need saving. And that can only come by humility. Humility is, as has often uh, been said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It is being caught up in something greater than yourself so that you're actually free from the crippling grip of self. You want to meet a miserable person? Meet a person who can't get over themselves. Meet a person who's continually looking, needing, and craving, and demanding certain things from others for them to feel satisfied or secure or happy. Meet a person who is constantly and continually evaluating the way other people act and think and treat them because without it, they would be crushed. And they constantly have these expectations towards others that if one expectation goes unmet, you'll know about it. What do you call that? Slavery to self. Slavery to self. And the great irony is is that the more focused on self that we are because we think it'll make us happy, because I got to make me happy, then guess what? The more miserable you are. Why? Because we were made for something greater than ourselves. You want to meet a truly happy, joyful person? Meet a person who's so caught up in something greater than themselves that they don't have time to worry about themselves. Meet a person who is so captivated by vision of Christ that they're not, they don't even have time to think about, well, I did this for them and they didn't do that for me or I did this and this. They don't even have time to think about that because guess what? They got a God to glorify. They got a king to make great. They got people to love. They, and they love and they serve people not for people's sake, but for Christ's sake. If you serve people for people's sake, then guess what? People are going to make you miserable. If you serve people for Christ's sake, then there's no limit to the good you can do in this world. Because Christ will never let you down. 
And it frees you. It frees you from the grip of the way other people respond and think about you. It frees you to live for the praise of one person, not a million. The praise of God alone. It frees you from yourself. From slavery to self to be free to do what you were made to do. Be captivated by the glory and joy of the one for whom you were made. Jesus Christ. You see, that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't care one might, if you will, about himself. Because he said, I came to do one thing. It doesn't matter if the Jews despise me. It doesn't matter if the, old, the very people I came to save rejected me. Because I came to do one thing. Please, my father. If I receive his commendation, it doesn't matter who else says what about me. One job. Make daddy proud. That was Jesus' vision of life. What's yours? What do you live for? What's the driving force behind why you do what you do? Is your whole countenance and life predicated upon what others do and think towards you? Or, does, or upon what God thinks towards you? It's a fundamental difference and it makes all the difference in the world. What we need to do is we need to put ourselves behind ourselves. And seek to please one. And let me tell you something. There's beauty and there's glory unimaginable in that. Because guess what? Well, all we have to do is please one. All we have to do is glorify one. And guess what? If not a single person in this world thanks you for anything that you do, guess what? Who cares? God's watching. Why be thanked by men when you can be thanked by God? The position of the king, the posture of the king, and number three, the proclamation of the king. It says there in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And so, um, as we look at this passage here, I'm saying that part of what Jesus' baptism uh, was to accomplish was to proclaim who he was. Jesus' baptism was the beginning of his public ministry. So up until this time, as far as we know, he had performed no miracles. He had done no um, you know, intentional acts as ministry. But this is Jesus' public inauguration, if you will, proclamation of his uh, kingship and uh, his formal, the formal beginning of his ministry. Now, we know that John knows some things about Jesus, uh, and he recognizes to a degree who he is. But on the other hand, in, in the Gospel of John, it says that part of the reason that John baptized was to, was to verify and to validate the identity of the king. In John 1, 32, it says, John bore witness, quote, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
So in some sense, John's baptism serves as the certain divine confirmation of Jesus' identity to John and for that matter to the rest of the world. And uh, his baptism is marked by two profoundly significant events. Number one is the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. And number two is the voice from heaven that declared Jesus as God's son. And to interpret these, what I want us to see here is that basically nothing that happens, this is why I plead with you to read your Bibles. Because I'm telling you, if you think you understand the New Testament, but you don't have a good grasp of the Old Testament, you don't understand the New Testament. So I plead with you to read your Bibles. Why? Because when you do, God will open up new vistas of understanding that, you've never, that you didn't even know were there. When you begin to see how the whole Bible fits together, what you will see is that virtually nothing that happens to Jesus or anything that Jesus does, virtually nothing that Jesus does happens without some type of Old Testament background in it. So is there any Old Testament Testament significance to the descending of the Holy Spirit and the voice from heaven declaring Jesus as God's son? The answer is yes. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then a a few verses later, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the anointed servant of God who will rule the nations. He is the one whom God is saying in his baptism that the spirit is being poured out on him because he is going to be given as a covenant to the people to do what? To establish a relationship between all nations and God himself. And he will rule them and he will give sight to the blind and he will bring uh, prisoners out of the dungeon and out of those who sit in darkness. So God is definitively saying in Jesus' baptism that this is him. This is my promised servant whom I promised to anoint with my spirit. This is my servant king who will rule the nations. And in addition to that, he is God's son with whom he is well pleased. Uh, We pointed out before um, that being God's son was a title that was attributed to the nation of Israel as a whole. Uh, but in addition to that, what we see is that in addition to being uh, a title for, God's, uh, for Israel as a whole, that is, Jesus is the true Israel, God's son is also a messianic title recorded by David in Psalm uh, chapter 2. And this is what Psalm 2 says. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There it is. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then verse 7, I will tell of the decree. So this is interesting. You should go back and read Psalm 2. It's like David had a vision of like the heavenly throne room, and he's like hearing this happen. This is fascinating. In verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
So when God tells Jesus, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. If we're reading our Bibles correctly, we should know what God is saying. It's him. He's the king. He's the anointed one. He's the chosen one to rule the nations. And there's one final thing I want to bring out about this as we close. And I think this is important. Jesus' baptism occurred at the, the beginning of his public ministry. So, so just think about this. Jesus has not done anything in terms of public ministry yet. Not a single thing. And God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What does that mean? It means the father's love for Jesus isn't based on his performance. It's based on who he is. It's his son. And why is this good news? Because the Bible says this. Jesus, the father, the father loves the son in an unfathomable way. It's, it's impossible to even put into words how God the Father loves God the Son. But this is what I'm saying. The Bible says that when we turn from our sin and trust in Christ and believe in him, the Bible says that we are united to Christ. That is, that we become in Christ. What does that mean? It means this, that when God sees you in your, in your faith in his Son, God doesn't just see you, God sees his Son. And guess what? God loves his son. So if you are in his son, if you are in his son, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. God loves you like he loves your own son because you have left all to follow his son. And so he loves you like his own son. And you belong to him. That's what faith is. That's what salvation is. That's the glory of God. So as we close this morning, Jesus did all this to fulfill all righteousness. He was, he was perfect in our place where we couldn't be. And he, and he is the anointed son of God, the one who will rule the nations. And on top of all this, he says that if you turn from your sins and trust in him, you become in him. You are united with him. And just as God declared over his own son, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. If you are in Jesus, Jesus too will declare over you. God the Father too will declare over you, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. That's grace. And it's a gift that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that gift, I invite you to receive it today. Let's pray.